You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2022 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Our dear loving Father in heaven, as we have the privilege of sitting at your feet and beholding the loveliness of Jesus that's seen through your word, especially here in 1 John, Lord, you gave both Dr. Holmes and me a love for that book in the Bible, and it's so relevant and so uh, meaningful for us as we are the church of the last hour to stand faithful till Jesus comes. We know, Lord, we can't do it without you, so I pray, Lord, that you would send the Holy Spirit to guide us. Hide me, Lord, behind the cross of Jesus, that he be seen. Forgive us, Lord, where we've come short of your glory, and send the Spirit to be our teacher and guide, that we'll be encouraged and strengthened to serve you more faithfully as we've been here together. In Jesus' name, amen. Truly, the book of 1 John is a call to watch yourselves, to beware, to take heed. Don't fall for the deception, no matter how appealing it may sound. And we realize that uh, Jesus' own words, if we turn to Matthew 24 and verse 10, Matthew 24 and verse 10, one of the things that I appreciate about Dr. Holmes' style as I'm sharing the messages he'd help prepare here is seeing the interconnection between other passages of Scripture with 1 John and the words of Jesus himself. Matthew 24, verse 10. Matthew 24 and verse 10. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. So we're called to stand faithful in that type of an environment. Why? So we don't forfeit ourselves what we have preached to others. So you don't lose the souls you have won by betraying the truth and so fomenting doubt. God wants to strengthen the church of the last hour. If we turn to 1 John 2 verse 18, this has been our, one of our key texts in our seminar as we find the name of the church in this verse. 1 John 2 18, the scriptures tell us, I like to hear those pages turning so you can turn there in your scriptures. 1 John 2.18, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So we're called to be strong in this last hour church spiritually so that God's people will stay true and united in Christ in such a crucial time. The unity is protection from the world, this unity pressing together in Christ, and is essential for gathering disciples out of the world. So he says to that church, we find this in 1 John 2, 17, promise to this last hour church, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So if we look at that text, I appreciate how Dr. Holmes uh, would often put uh, brackets next to words to give further insight. It's kind of like reading an Amplified Bible. The world of hostility is passing away along with its desires. It's not going to last. But whoever, the church that does the will of God, abides forever or will last. So God's calling us to be the church that makes it through these final days, ultimately to the hereafter. He explains that the reason why the world that is hostile to Christians does not know us as that it did not know him, that is God. If we go to 1 John 3, verse 1. 1 John 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, 
And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. So this lack of knowing God leads to the, the problems that we find. That world is so far from God that it's hard to recognize His people, which is why they have to watch yourselves. We go to 1 John 2.15 now, the call not to love the world. 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So don't be like them. Don't fall for the deception. And why is this? 1 John 2, verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. So I, once again, will share this text as Pastor Holmes annotated it. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, sensuality, and the desires of the eyes, covetousness, and pride in possessions, materialism is not from the Father, but is from the world. That's the way the hostile world is. So don't believe everything you hear from that world of false prophets. Test it against the Word of God. Listen to and believe only that which meets the test. 1 John 4, 1 through 3. Let's turn there. 1 John 4, 1 through 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So this is the cardinal test. Uh, We are to only listen to and believe that which confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Otherwise, we would be led astray by Antichrist. So their safety and protection lies in the fact that we are, if we go to 1 John 4, 6, the scriptures tell us, 1 John 4, 6, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So there are two essential attributes that characterize the church of the last hour, which we saw named in 1 John 2, verse 18. The church prepared to meet the hostility of the world. For one, it's the absence of hatred. And secondly, it's the demonstration of love. If you love, you cannot hate. And if you hate, you cannot love. So we see this in 1 John 2, verses 9 through 11, how clear John the Apostle writes by the Holy Spirit. 1 John 2, verses 9 through 11. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. So if we look at this closely, um, if we don't know where we're going, that's someone who's lost his way. Why? Because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So what did Jesus say? If we go to Matthew 5, verse 39, Matthew 5, verse 39, Christ Paul, in this regard, Matthew 5 and verse 39. 
the way we are to love. Matthew 5, verse 39. Jesus says, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now we go to verse 44 and 45 of Matthew 5. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So this is the kind of love we see our Heavenly Father manifests. This is the principle that determines how the church of the last hour meets the demands of that hour and without which it cannot fulfill its mission. We turn back now to 1 John chapter 3. We see John the Beloved bring this out even more. 1 John 3, verses 14 through 18. 1 John 3, verses 14 through 18. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So the spiritual reality demand, the spiritual reality demanded is that we find the way to live faithfully as the church, or from the original Greek, ecclesia, the called out ones in the last hours. We saw in 1 John 2.18. The way of life that overcomes the world is a life of love for God amid this hostile world, to love that hostile world, the reality of which is demonstrated by faith that obeys his commandments, especially in the midst of hostility. Can you say amen? We're called to be that faithful last hour church. And I really have to just pause here and say I sense that that is exactly what Dr. Holmes did. He stayed faithful to this last hour church uh, to the end. And he was willing to do whatever he could to further God's call and further God's kingdom. And so... Uh, it's a privilege that we have to continue in the word that will prepare us for the coming of Jesus. The same message is going to go out. And some of you who may not have been here uh, a few days ago, um, his voice was, was giving him difficulty on Wednesday. And uh, I asked him, I said, Pastor Holmes, can I share your seminar if your voice doesn't get better? And he said, well, here's the notes that are for today and tomorrow. And, and um, here you go. And, and you can use my Bible. And, and I said, um, okay, and so he sat right here, and then some of you who were here know that mid-seminar, he started to not feel well, and he's like, I'm not feeling good. Um, he put his hat on, maybe he was cold, um, but um, a couple, uh, two people, Timur and another lady that was here, helped him to his car, and um, he was taken back to the hotel. We brought him lunch, brought him supper, and then um, early in the morning of, of Thursday, so just yesterday, um, it was around two in the morning, he, he was calling my name. He said, Sean, you know, and I came over, I was just in the next bed over, and, um, I, you know, saw him there, and he, he was saying he was having some pain, and so I kind of massaged his side a little bit, and 
I say the Holy Spirit picked the song, but I started to sing softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. And um, I sang a few choruses, a few verses of that, a little bit of that, and I, he kind of just drifted back off to sleep. Little did I know that that was the last memory that I would have of him um, breathing, because uh, I woke up maybe an hour or two later to have my devotions, and of all things that I read that morning was the chapter in Desire of Ages, Calvary, about the death of Jesus. And I think about Jesus' death actually brought great life and power to the kingdom of God. And I believe Dr. Holmes' death um, at this time, at this camp meeting, given the message he was sharing, is only meant to encourage us to be that faithful to the end. And uh, so it was around 5.50 in the morning that uh, Timur and I were there. Um, we were all rooming there with him, helping him. And, and um, just I, I looked at him and I, I didn't think he looked asleep. He looked more than asleep. And I put my hand near his nose. There was no breath. And uh, another pastor we had met at the hotel, the Maxfield Inn, um, came in and he put his hand on his forehead and he said, Brother Holmes is sleeping in Jesus. I knew what that meant. And um, he's really sleeping. No more suffering. And some of you know that he lost his wife, dear wife. They'd been married for, can you believe it, 65 years. 65 years of faithfulness in those wedding vows, which were severely tested if you know their testimony. You can read about it in his book, Stranger My Home, and her version of what she went through in No Turning Back. Both of them were excellent reads. Um, Shirley S. Holmes and then Dr. C. Raymond Holmes, Stranger My Home. He's written other books that are also a blessing, uh, Baptized But Buried Alive. He also wrote, at the time he was still at Andrews, a book that is, I guess you could say, Maybe not always the most popular, but it's biblical. Um, the tip of an iceberg in which he describes if we're unfaithful to how we interpret scripture in the area of ordination regarding gender, that we're opening up our floodgates for almost anything else in how we interpret scripture. And um, he retired shortly after writing that book to the Upper Peninsula, where he served for, praise the Lord, 28 years in his retirement. And uh, that was 1994. And 1994... I, as a seven-year-old child, was walking the Mackinac Bridge, stepped foot in the UP for the first time, little knowing that God and his providence would be preparing me some years later um, in the year 2015 to pastor with him as his young associate. I started when I was 28, and he was already in his 80s. So God has been very gracious to him and to me. I feel like in his sunset years, God was helping me in my sunrise of beginning ministry and and I just share that so some of you can better understand that um, a mighty warrior for the Lord has, has put off his armor, but um, he did it in the midst of battle. And I found this amazing. I, his daughter, I spoke with yesterday, had a thought the day before. And she said, what if my dad was to pass at camp meeting? No one said anything to her about it. A few hours later, she gets the call that he did pass away. And... In some ways, she was like, but that's what he would have wanted. He was doing what he loved to do. Uh, he was preaching the word. Um, he was at a place where there were so many years of good memories. And um, I praise the Lord for how God used him. So I pray that you're able to be blessed by uh, the message that continues. And also, if you're able to access any of his books, uh, to be blessed by that. So I'm not sure if they're currently available um, at the ABC but, um, of course, whatever books are still available, um, a lot of them are now available online. Sometimes you can find them in, in that way. So, um, 
The road, yeah, The Road I Travel is his most recent book, and it's reflections on how God has led in his life and journey. And I think it's really a testimony, it really is, that uh, if we're willing for God to use us, he has a testimony to write in all of our lives. And so, on that note, I'd like us to continue our time in 1 John, but I thought that'd be helpful to just connect those, those points of his experience, and um, we praise the Lord for what God did through him. So, so far from our study of 1 John, we've learned that the world of fallen humanity that is in the power of the evil one is full of hatred for God's people and his church. We've learned that the condition of the world in, we saw this in 1 John 2.18, but it's worth going back there, 1 John 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So the church in this last hour is that of widespread hostility toward God, his truth, and his people. Such hostility should not surprise God's people who know and understand his word. If we go to 1 John 3, verse 13, 1 John 3, 13, where the scriptures warn us, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So God's people need to be ready for it and prepared to meet it. He has told us that Satan is, if we go to Revelation 12, verse 17, in these words, what is Satan's plots towards the church of the last hour? Revelation 12, 17. Revelation 12, verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So we see here very clearly that that's Satan's attack. He's trying to pull down God's church, this woman representing the church. There are two essential attributes that characterize the church of the last hour. This is the church prepared to meet the hostility of the world. For one, it's the absence of hatred. And secondly, the demonstration of love. If you love, you cannot hate. And if you hate, you cannot love, because love comes from God, who will dwell in our hearts by faith. In other words, the atmosphere in which the Christian believer lives is that of righteousness, not that of sin. This is the divine principle that determines how the church of the last hour meets the demands of that hour, and without which it cannot fulfill its mission. John characterizes the condition of the world as darkness. The world is lying in its darkness. Life is not possible in darkness. It has to have light in order to survive. In complete darkness, nothing can be seen. Not good or evil, not danger or safety. Evil and danger cannot be avoided because it cannot be seen. Good and safety cannot be followed for the same reason. Light is absolutely necessary to avoid danger, to expose evil and reveal good, to show the way. Light illuminates. Darkness hides. The contrast between darkness and light is so obvious. Darkness does not come into light. Light comes into darkness. We see this in Genesis chapter 1. If we go back to Genesis 1, verses 2 through 4. Right there at the beginning of creation. First thing that God deals with is light. Light over darkness. Genesis 1, beginning in verse 2. 
the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. So we see here that God says that the darkness was over the face of the deep until God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. So in the beginning, all that was there was darkness. Darkness was there before there was anything else. God did something about that. He brought light into darkness. Light came into darkness. Notice that God did not call darkness good. He called light good. We have always seen an allusion to the coming of Christ, the Deliverer, as well as the great controversy in Genesis chapter 3. Look at verse 15. Genesis 3 and verse 15. First gospel promise here. Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So this controversy rages between God and Satan, and God is the one that said to Satan those words, that he would put enmity between you and the woman. He shall bruise your head. But there seems to be an allusion to the gospel as early as Genesis 1, 2, and 3, which we just read. We'll go back there, because the gospel brings light. Genesis 1, 2, and 3. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. So when God brings light into darkness, he acts. He takes the initiative. This is the first manifestation of his grace operating on behalf of the universe. He was in the process of creating. Genesis 1 tells us, In verse 4, what he did, the separation. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And then it continues in verses 14 through 18, if we turn there, in Genesis 1. Genesis 1, 14 through 18. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. So we see here that God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, to give light upon the earth, so this is the sun and moon, which are not mentioned by name here, to separate the light from the darkness. So we ask the question, was the separation meant to make the contrast most obvious? Light is more powerful than darkness. Even the moon reflects the light of the sun as it has no light of its own. God created light for our good. Mankind was not made to exist in darkness. 
Literally, darkness is the absence of natural light. Remember when Jesus was on the cross, if we go to Matthew 27, verse 45. Matthew 27, verse 45. Looking at this battle of light and darkness, Matthew 27, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. So here, the sixth hour, which is noon, according to Jewish time, there is darkness over all the land, which is the earth, until the ninth hour, which would be 3 p.m. So this is happening at what we would call the brightest part of the day. It's getting pitch black. In the middle of the day, because it was a dark and wicked deed that was being done to Jesus, that unnatural darkness speaks volumes concerning the evil in human hearts. In spite of the fact that light, and that is speaking of Christ, has come into the world, if we go to John chapter 3, we see this struggle in the area of the heart. John 3, Gospel of John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. John 3, 19 and 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. So as we look at this verse more closely, the light, speaking of Christ, has come into the world, but we see that people love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Let's just think about that. Why are they loving darkness? The verse tells us because their deeds were evil. So it's this struggle as to the heart issue of light and darkness. The Bible describes darkness as a place of misery. In the parable of the wedding feast, the king tells his servants to take a man who has no wedding garments, and where does he cast him? Go to Matthew 22, verse 13. Matthew 22 and verse 13. So we see the evil associated with darkness. Matthew 22, verse 13. <clears throat> Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus used this contrast between light and darkness to illustrate the contrast between righteousness and lawlessness. And we also see this in 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 14 in Paul's writings as well. Go to 2 Corinthians 6. Verse 14, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. The Bible makes this very clear call, 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? It's a very powerful Rhetorical question. Darkness characterizes the condition of the world, of the whole world, that lies under what power? 1 John 5, verse 19. We turn back to 1 John now. 1 John 5 and verse 19. 1 John 5, verse 19. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So, being under the power of the evil one is what brings that darkness. What a sad, depressing picture. And what would physical life be like if there was only darkness? 
not pleasant, depressing. Don't you feel better when the sun shines? You have a sunny day. Uh, that's one thing I appreciate about the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. I know that Dr. Holmes appreciated it too, is we would get quite a few sunny days, it seemed, in the western Upper Peninsula. And his favorite season was spring. Spring brings longer days and warmth of the sun. So in 1 John, we find that God is, now you can say the last word, God is love. 1 John 4, verse 18. Excuse me, 1 John 4, 8. 1 John 4, 8 here. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. But we also find that God is another clear statement. 1 John 1, 5. 1 John 1, verse 5. We could connect that love is light. 1 John 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Praise the Lord for that. When everything in the last hour appears dark and forbidding and fearful, that is mighty good news. God brings light into the darkness of the world. How? For one, by his own presence, for he is light. And secondly, the coming of Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. If you go to Matthew 4 and verse 16, Matthew is quoting what took place through prof prophetic revelation quoted in Isaiah. Matthew 4, verse 16. Matthew 4, 16. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Go to John 8 and verse 12 together. So the concept of light is directly connected with Jesus' ministry and presence in the world. John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus truly is the light of the world. So in the last hour, as we saw in 1 John 2.18, God's people have a special role to play, as he says in Acts 13.47. Let's turn there, Acts 13.47. What is our role as the last hour of church? Acts 13, verse 47. Acts 13, beginning verse 47. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That's our calling. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 5, 14 through 16, these powerful words of commission. Matthew 5, 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The darkness of the world in the last hour is not the time for his people to wring their hands in hopeless despair. We're to shine in this time because you already are the light through Christ. It is the final opportunity for those that are light to be what they are, to be what God has made them to be, light 
John makes it absolutely clear that walking in the light is like, and in other words, what it's going to reflect, how we're going to act, and what is meant to accomplish. It's walking in love. It says in 1 John 2 and verse 8, if we turn back to our theme book, 1 John 2 verse 8, promise is given of darkness passing away. 1 John 2 verse 8. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. We're thankful for that. Light is needed the most when the darkness is the greatest. And so we continue in 1 John 2, 9 through 11. How are we to walk in the light? Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. In other words, walking without that love, that light of the character of Christ, caused the person not be able to see. He cannot even see the difference between darkness and light. Going back to Jesus' own words, how we reflect this love, this light. Matthew 5, 44. Matthew 5 and verse 44. Lest we think it's only loving the people that love us. Matthew 5, 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that is real light in the darkness of hostility and hatred. This is not theological ideas, which is a matter of the mind. This is religious experience, which is a matter of the heart. There is sometimes a big difference between our beliefs, our doctrines, and our religion, what we practice. Notice James brings this in James 1, verse 26. James chapter 1 and verse 26. The Bible really has them intricately connected as a whole. James 1, 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So it goes beyond our words. It reaches down to our motives, our character, our thoughts, our feelings, our actions. John enlarges what it means to be in the light and to abide in the light when he says this in 1 John 2, 28-29. 1 John chapter 2, 28-29. How are we to walk in this light? 1 John 2, 28-29. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming if you know that he is righteous you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him so we see here continuing in first john 3 verse 10 it's even clearer first john 3 10 by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So it all comes down to love. And we see this in action, 1 John 3, 14 and 15. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. 
Now we continue in verses 16 through 19 of 1 John 3. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Verse 19, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. That's what we're called to live this last hour. So what are we called to do in this last hour, church? In the face of hatred and hostility, and he's got it in all caps, love, that's what we're called to do. John gives major attention to this in his letter. The antidote for hatred is love. So if we go to 1 John 4, starting in verse 7. 1 John 4, continuing in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. And now we'll look at 1 John 5, 4 and 5, how we experience this love. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So this is what it means to be sanctified, as we see in Jesus' own words in his high priestly prayer in John 17. Go to John 17 and verse 17. To let the truth change us. John 17, 17. Part of Christ's prayer for us to be one. John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So the only way to be sanctified is in the truth that is found in the word. God's truth has become our way of life. So light comes into darkness. The dark world hates God and his people because it is apparent, as we see in John 17, 14, just a few verses prior, John 17, 14, I have given them your word, And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, 
just as I am not of the world. So they're called out. They're not of the world. What does that mean? It means that we do not follow its philosophy or participate in its way of life in the world, but not of the world. You see, we have a mission, the demands of which are the greatest in this last hour church. Jesus has sent us into the world to be light, and in so doing, reveal the light and expose the works of darkness. See this in John 17, verse 18. John 17, 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. For what purpose? We see this in John 17, 21, and then we'll move to 23. That they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. This is when a, the love of God, his agape, his sacrificial love counts the most. Light shines the brightest when darkness is the deepest. Just as darkness and hate are synonymous, so light and love are synonymous also. We have a danger though. The danger is to reject this love, to refuse to fulfill this demand of the last hour. This last hour mission, no matter what the cost, would be to sink into the darkness ourselves, which is the dominion of the devil, who is the source of all hatred in this world. We'll go to John chapter 3 and verse 10. We want the evidence of that love in our hearts. 1 John 3 and verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And from the pen of inspiration, Ellen White, in Manuscript Releases, Volume 20, page 283, we have this powerful insight penned. Whoever loves God supremely and his neighbor as himself is keeping the commandments of God. Although he has to meet the annoyances that will come from a fallen world, yet he is not discouraged because Christ has said, I have overcome the world. So we are God's faithful people. It's what he's called us to be. And we are the light in these dark times. And by his grace, we're going to shine. Can you say amen? Amen. I wanted to do something special as we close our seminar, and that is that some of you may have questions about things that I may have experienced with Dr. Holmes or would like to ask any questions about the seminar. And this is the mic, so if you have a question, I'd like you to raise your hand. I'll come over to you, put it near you, and just we want to spend the last few minutes maybe just reflecting, and maybe some of you um, have a testimony you want to share. This will go up online so others can be blessed as well. Anyone? Have a question. Yes. I just wanted to say uh, we have one of his books on his shelf. It was helpful to my dad and I, and I got to visit his church up in Bessemer in August of 2011. So uh, I'm grateful, you know, to hear that he was serving God to the very end until the last day of his life. Amen. Thank you for that testimony. It's a blessing. 
Yes. In a nutshell, very briefly, could you tell us, in your perspective, what he sacrificed when he entered into uh, our church? It's a very good question. I'll go up front to answer that. So Danny Strever just asked the question, what did Dr. Holmes sacrifice to become a Seventh-day Adventist? Well, if you've read his book, Stranger My Home, you will know that he was in a state of crisis, actually. His ministry was actually in Bessemer at the time that his wife, Shirley, was starting to become close, and uh, not just close, but was learning new biblical truths from a good friend, uh, Bertha Bigford, and Shirley made the decision to be baptized as a Seventh-day Adventist. And Dr. Holmes was in a state of crisis in his marriage because if he stayed faithful to his ministry as a Lutheran, how could he do so with a Seventh-day Adventist wife? So he's considering, well, probably no other church will give me a call because what I'm going to be presenting, my wife doesn't believe, and that's just going to create that, that contention or difficulty. And it's an amazing struggle. And I, I had the privilege of actually, he took me to the very church and the very spot in that church, the Sharon Lutheran Church, where he had that struggle. And he told me about what it was like but as his wife had made that choice based on scripture, she saw the Sabbath truth, the seventh day is the Sabbath, it's right there in the Ten Commandments, and she loved Jesus and she was willing to take that stand even if her husband did not yet support that. She had to be faithful to Jesus. And praise the Lord for Shirley's courage. Um, but as his struggle was involved with the, the thoughts and feelings about how the Bigfords had shared the Sabbath with his wife and He's shared this in his book, so I don't mind saying it, but he got to the point where he really hated the Bigfords. He was very angry, and um, he realized, how can I have this hatred in my heart if I'm a pastor, if I'm a minister? And it was just a, a huge heart struggle and, and heart-wrenching. And he said he's never been one to do this, but he did it that time. He went into the, the Sharon Lutheran Church, and I think he, either he lay prostrate, he was just there on the floor, and he took his Bible and... I think it's meaningful to do this. He just at random opened it, and of all verses, it landed on Jeremiah 29, 11. If you'd like to turn there, this is actually a verse that when I would go visit him in his house, which I've done, I don't know how many times, many, many, many times, um, it's right on the wall as you walk into his house. Jeremiah 29, verse 11, which says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. And, you know, his heart is just torn as what is he to do? Should he be faithful to his wedding vows, uh, his ordination vows as a Lutheran minister? Is his ministry at an end? All this is just, you know, coming to a head. And God gives him this verse that God has plans for him. And so from a human standpoint, it looked like maybe his ministry was ending. How is he going to deal with this? Because he at that point did not believe in the Sabbath. He was not convicted on that, and he did not want to base his religious experience off of his wife's experience. It had to be his own experience with God. It had to be the truth that God had revealed to him. And an amazing providence and grace, the Bigfords invited um, him to go down to Andrews to study out um, these things and see if they were so. And that verse was the turning point for him he realized he had set his marriage vows before he had his ordination vows. He chose to be faithful to Shirley, 
even though at one point he wanted her to leave. And their, their, their very marriage was in a crisis. But God preserved their marriage, and they had a very strong godly marriage for many more years after that. Uh, so he went down to Andrews, and he will tell you, or he would have told you, um, as I remember him saying it, that Luther convinced him to keep the Sabbath because he read that Luther accurately translated the scriptures into German, and then in his catechism that Luther had written, regarding the Ten Commandments, Luther had stated, remember to keep a Sabbath day, or it was, it was basically, it was not the exact wording of the biblical text. And here's Luther, that mighty champion of sola scriptura, and Dr. Holmes' mind, I don't know that he was a doctor at the time, but Pastor Holmes' mind at the time, he's thinking, Luther, you're not being faithful to your own principles of sola scriptura. And he's like, I'm going to be more Lutheran than Luther. And I'm going to follow the Sabbath. Amen. And he chose, he, you know, he was in his seminary carol. He said, that's where it, where it clicked for him. He was in his little seminary carol. And it's like the light opened on his mind. He's like, I must be faithful to the word. I can't be, I, I, can't, I must be, my conscience must be faithful to the word of God. And the Holy Spirit moved him, and in you know, just God's grace, how he, God worked it out, the Big Birds for generous, they sent him, I believe, $500 a month, because Dr. Bigford uh, was a dentist and, and had the means to do that. So he was able to be there at seminary, and, and he, he said he met Jesus there. He said the faculty were, were so Christ-like, and they, they pointed him to Jesus, and he discovered the truth for himself. This was not his wife's testimony. This was not his wife's beliefs. This was his own biblical study and wrestling through whether these things were so. And that's the kind of faith that we're going to need to make it through the last hour. It has to be our experience with the Lord. So what he sacrificed, you may have said, well, he had a 600-member church in Bessemer, uh, just you know, a few miles away from where his wife was born and raised in Wakefield. His first call as a minister was three small churches in the Upper Peninsula, Trout Creek, Ewan, and Painesdale. And believe it or not, the district that I serve in, I go through Ewan almost all the time. And he would sometimes say, he's like, you're starting your ministry almost right where I started, of course, many, many years before, and he started as a Lutheran. Uh, but he would remember those things. And so his second call was to the Bessemer Church, the Sharon Lutheran Church, a large church. He had so many good memories there. They did youth events and travel with the, the singing. He had a, a singing group. And he really focused a lot on godly piety in his ministry was a very sincere minister. He was not in any way in favor of where he was seeing his church starting to lean more towards acceptance of compromises of biblical standards. And um, God providentially opened up this scriptural truth to his mind, um, not just because of his wife, but because of his own, his own struggle. And so he became a Seventh-day Adventist in 1971 at Pioneer Memorial Church. And uh, that was, a, I believe, a couple years after his wife had been baptized at a camp meeting, the Wisconsin camp meeting, and uh, God, you know, worked in both of their lives in a marvelous way. So from our standpoint, it looks like your Lutheran ministry is over, but then God allowed him to then uh, serve in the Seventh Avenue Church, and he served in multiple churches. He even took a call to the Philippines for a time and taught the school over there, and um, in his retirement, after teaching at Andrews for many years, uh, went to the Upper Peninsula and amazingly would pastor a Seventh-day Adventist church blocks away from the Sharon Lutheran Church. It's just amazing. I mean, it, it's just right the town that I drive through all the time. So if in our finite understanding, we ever think we're called to make a sacrifice for God and we trust his word over what we're going through, 
he will always give us his plans that are better. And that's what God really did for Dr. Holmes. And I feel like that's, that's a testimony for all of us today. Uh, to walk in the light, walk in the word, and to walk in love. So, any other questions? I know we just have a few more minutes here, but I'm thankful for this time. I was very blessed to uh, hear both uh, Raymond Holmes' testimony and his wife's on Strong Tower Radio Amen. while I drive my truck, and Amen. that's why I came to the Amen. seminar today. So, Amen. Praise the Lord. It was, uh, it's an amazing testimony. Amen. Yes, you can get their testimony in written form through their books or listen to it in the different times that they shared it. It's really a testimony of God's goodness. Another question. Okay. I'll repeat your question. That's a good question. So we're kind of early in on that uh, question about the memorial service. We don't have any details on that yet, but from what I understand, he would have wanted it to be in the church he pastored in Bessemer. So um, more of that will be shared as decisions are made, but um, he just passed away yesterday. So um, prayers for his family and, and praise the Lord that the messages that he shared and the, the word of God that he loved is going to carry us through in this church of the last hour. So let's, let's, we're called to be faithful to the end. I just want to encourage you to read First John, to meditate on its message, and to internalize the light that is God's love, and to remember Dr. Holmes. You know, this was, I can't think of a better way in light of what he loved for this to have happened. Of course, we know that God does not cause death, but he allows it at a certain time, and he allowed him to rest peacefully, and um, his, his ministry is going to continue to bear fruit as people are, are drawn to Jesus and his word, the word of God. So, Amen. yes, got another question here. Okay. Yes. Yes. Appreciate that. Yes. I appreciate the prayers that God will guide me as I have taken on the mantle in a sense of the ministry that he has laid off his armor. But um, I'm just thankful that it's Jesus that carries us through. You know, God uses people in our lives and mentors us, but it's ultimately Jesus that's, that's the one that's preparing us for heaven. And I just encourage each of you uh, to stay faithful to the word, to the end. No matter how unpopular it is, no matter how much the world hates it, it's that love of Christ that constrains us and the word of God abides forever. So, praise the Lord. So how many of you, just as we've had this seminar experience You've kind of been, been part of this testimony of how God uh, closed his life journey and with a seminar on First John, both his favorite book of the Bible and my favorite book of the Bible before I even met him, and uh, you know God's providence there. But how many of you like to stay faithful to the Word of God through the Holy Spirit by raise of hand and ask Jesus, not promise Jesus, but ask Jesus to keep you in that Word? Let's kneel together and pray. Loving Father in heaven, as we bow before your throne, it's just a privilege, Lord, to have been given Jesus, the Word of God, to think that you inspired John, who loved Jesus so much, was so close to him. Of all the, the twelve, was the closest disciple. Uh, thank you, Lord, uh, for allowing us to not only receive your Word, but to live your Word to the end and to be found abiding in you when Jesus comes. Lord, you know the struggles and the temptations we're all going to face going from this seminar and we pray that you will help us to abide in 
what you promised and to remember that you will finish the work you've begun in us because you are faithful to complete it. Thank you, Lord, for the life and ministry of Dr. Holmes. May the way that we've shared this seminar be um, not only to honor him, but to honor you, Lord, as you gave him to us for 93 years. We praise you, Lord. Keep us faithful to the end. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 22 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcasts.